All right, everyone, welcome back to Making the Argument. Today, we're going to be discussing the question I think is on everybody's mind. Are we headed for another multi-decade war in the Middle East? Because as much as the Biden administration wants to say that we've, we've written off this idea of forever wars, we seem to be finding ourselves in a lot of conflicts right now, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's over in, in Israel, whether it's these strikes that are now taking place as a result of Iranian militant groups that just killed three, SU, three U.S. soldiers in Jordan. So the question is this, why, if Biden going into office was supposed to be an end to all of this, are we experiencing more and more of it? And what should we be doing to actually ensure peace and hopefully prevent getting involved in another war while at the same time protecting American service members and sovereignty? All of that and more coming up in this episode of Making the Argument brought to you by Good Ranchers. Welcome everyone to this episode. If you haven't already, I hope you'll check out our community chat where we've had some great discussions on previous topics that we've talked about on this show. You can join by going to the link in the description right below this episode. We look forward to meeting you there. Okay, as always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas. Unfortunately, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees, is not with us in the studio today. She's actually down here in Richmond coming to see me, but we didn't have a spot. So you are stuck with just me and, of course, our resident historian and political prognosticator, Master Hines. How are you doing, Christian? Yeah, unfortunately, you're stuck with me, too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just us, man. And of course, our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. It's going to be a good episode. Yeah, it is. Just despite Tina's absence, we will we will do the best we can. All right, so let's jump right into this. So um, if I'm gonna we're gonna bring up this report here, um, and we got this one from BBC News that we read through the U.S. drone attack, three U.S. troops killed in a drone strike on a U.S. base in the Middle East. So just to give everyone, you know, again, I think most people have heard about this. They've they've seen this in the news. But we did have three uh, U.S. soldiers killed. Drone strikes have become a and, and, and understand. I think it used to be when we thought of drone strikes, a, a lot of this were like like heavy duty, um, you know, very very complex high speed drones with a with a hefty payload. Right? These are these are ones that are like dropping missiles off and things of that nature. Drone technology has advanced quite a bit. Um, not to mention the fact that there's all kinds of ways to be able to deliver rounds on target with a drone and it has gotten cheaper and cheaper. And in fact, one of the major companies that have been producing more and more of these drones is Iran. And we've seen them in action actually in Ukraine because once Russia kind of blew through a lot of their supply, they started going to Iran to buy, to buy more drones for the attacks uh, that they were conducting up there. But um, this is this is actually a very, very effective tool for terrorist organizations, for separatist organizations, um, insurgencies, whatever it is, because again, you can you can actually get something that is probably not going to show up on radar, right? So it's, it's not like it's a fast mover or a helicopter, or even one of these larger scale drones, like a Predator or something of that notion. You can get them. They're fairly easy to get your hands on. The technology Technology isn't that difficult to operate. I, I, I think anybody now that has, you know, operated just a simple drone that they have for, you know, with the cameras on them and things of that nature, um, it is not hard to make that a little bit heavier, uh, give it a little bit more of a, uh, give a little bit more power to it, and then be able to load it up with something fairly rudimentary, whether it's the ability to, um, you know, send projectiles or the ability to just load it up with a, a payload of explosives and then get it into the area that you want and detonate it. And again, there's, this is, it's very hard to, to counter, right? It, if you've got something that's relatively small that can get into places and, and, and has a, a fairly decent range, this becomes an effective tool for what we would call like asymmetric warfare. When you have uh, an, an entity which is nowhere near as powerful as the United States, clearly can't compete 
with the sort of conventional weaponry that we can put on target, but still has the ability, as long as they're able to identify vulnerable targets, uh, to be able to strike a blow. And that is what happened with these these three soldiers in Jordan. And, um, you know, we adjourned in honor and memory uh, the other day of, of those three soldiers. And it's, it's begging a couple of questions. The first question was going to be, what is Joe Biden going to do about this, right? Uh, another question that we're increasingly starting to act is, why do we have so many military personnel all over the globe to include places where they are, let's just say, at an, at an increased threat or increased vulnerability with respect to terrorist attacks? And I think another question that we have to ask um, that, and that we're going to get into is, why would they target U.S. personnel in Jordan? You would think with various things escalating in parts of the world, the things that have been going on uh, with respect to Gaza, um, the, the question you have to ask yourself is, why would, why would Iran or an Iran-backed group potentially be doing this? Are they just going rogue? Are they operating, are they, are they, you know, operating under orders from Iran since that's one of their, their chief backers. And of course, Iran denies this, but I, I actually do believe that we have sufficient information uh, to know that Iran is backing these groups, whether or not they authorized individual attacks or not, that can be a, a broader question, but that's where we're at. We got three U S soldiers. Um, we got three U S soldiers dead in Jordan. We've got a conflict going on in, in Gaza that a lot of people have been concerned is going to draw on the United States, at least from a financial and a, and a weapons position, which it already has on some level, uh, and, and whether or not that would actually excel to include ground troops. We obviously have the ongoing situation in Ukraine right now, which seems to achieve something of a, of, of a stalemate where neither side is, is actually making any significant gains one way or the other. And then there's this growing question with respect to Iran. Because remember that the backdrop of everything that's going on in Gaza right now is that under the Trump administration, you had the um, uh, Abram Accords, where you were actually starting to see countries like Saudi Arabia um, considering coming to the, tail, the table and signing a peace treaty with Israel. And, and a lot of that was um, you know, around this idea that a lot of the countries within the Arabian Peninsula, so that's, you know, that's, that's Qatar, Bahrain, um, uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia, see Iran as a, as a major threat. Because while they're all Islamic countries, one is predominantly, the, you know, the, the ones in the Arabian Peninsula are predominantly Sunni and they're predominantly Arab. Um, Iran is Persian and predominantly Shia. And so e even though, there's, even though there's, there's overlap with respect to being Islamic countries and you might think that there, there's some sort of um, you know, common core, common, common ground there, um, they're actually, in many respects, very, very bitter enemies and certainly mistrustful of, of one another, especially since Iran desperately is trying to assume this role as kind of the, the major uh, power, both against Israel and the West, and wants to kind of assume that leadership role over the entire region. And so that sort of, that sort of threat coming from Iran was one of the things that was encouraging more of these countries um, within the Middle East to actually step to the table and consider uh, greater peace talks with Israel and actually acknowledge um, Israel's right to exist, which right now I believe only Egypt and Jordan um, ha have done that on, on some level. So the, this whole attack that took place on October 7th in Israel and then Israel invading Gaza for the purposes of protecting its citizens, that obviously had a, had a chilling effect on a lot of these other peace talks. Um, so Israel was kind of in a, in a rock and a hard place because you you have to go and, and neutralize the threat posed by Hamas because they had experienced the, the largest terrorist attack um, 
or they, they'd experienced, I believe, the largest terrorist attack on Israeli soil in their history. But then if you if you also um, you also got to look at it from the lens that they had lost more people um, in, in a single event um, on that day than they had since the Holocaust. So it, it, it was significant. Uh, to put this in a, in a numbers perspective, it would have been the equivalent of a terrorist organization coming to the United States, killing over 40,000 people and then taking thousands more um, back across the border in order to hold us as hostages. Right. So this is that, that gives you some idea from from a scale perspective of how big it how big a, a attack this was on Israel. Now, regardless of what you feel about the larger conflict there, most Entities were pretty excited by the fact that we were we were actually moving toward more peace agreements between countries in the Middle East and Israel. This posed a major problem for Palestinian groups. Um, it posed a major problem for Hamas, and it posed a major problem from Iran as well. Because if you if you had more uh, countries within that area, not only having closer ties to the United States but also Israel, then that has kind of an isolating effect against Iran, and so. You, you could you could come up with a strategic argument for why it was in Iran's best interest in order to try to stir the pot again over in Israel and create an environment where now countries that were previously willing to come to the table on you know with Israel were no longer willing to do so because of what was going on in Gaza um, the big question that we had and we actually discussed this on one of our podcasts was how how far would Iran be willing to go in order to escalate this? Would they be willing to go to actually draw the United States into a conflict, um, either assuming that the Biden administration wouldn't be willing to do it or that they would misstep and do something wrong? Um, would they um, would, would they ultimately you know get involved in something that Iran felt was going to play to its own interests with respect to rallying varying groups across the Middle East that would have been completely dependent upon Iran? for a, a combination of munitions, support, logistics, money, et cetera, right? So the, these are all unknowns. These are all things that are being theorized right now. So I think the, the first thing, uh, that we'll, we'll, before I go on too far, Christian, is there anything you wanted to add with respect to just kind of the, the operational environment that we're discussing and, um, you know, obviously what's going on in, in uh, Gaza right now uh, as, as kind of a backdrop for these Iranian militant groups attacking U.S. troops in Jordan? Yeah, there's there's a couple things. So um, one of the things that, that first caught my attention and what you were just talking about earlier was was the whole drone situation. Mm -hmm. So we've seen in Ukraine that drones have actually played a, a larger role than I think anybody could have ever imagined up until this point in time. It's almost like every single day there's a video that comes out on the Internet showing a drone strike against either Russian or Ukrainian troops, for that matter, taking out things like not just individuals, but like tanks and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So one of the things that, that I've also learned in, in like following the, the Russo-Ukrainian war over the last two years is that the number of, of drones that are being used has, has only increased basically exponentially since day one of the invasion. It's as of late last year, so it's, it's probably even higher at this point, but as of late last year, it was like Russia was going through, um, and Ukraine for that matter, were both going through like 10,000 drones a month in terms of using them again to basically basically is almost like 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 you know mobile bombs to to disrupt again things like tank formations and stuff like that or to take out troops that were like in the field that were like you know conducting repairs on vehicles again there's so many videos of that type so the whole drone situation like if 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 you were paying attention to Ukraine you saw how 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 game changing that was 
And yeah. one of the things that, as you brought up, that the Russians started relying on were Iranian drones because they didn't really have the capacity to produce as many as they needed to use themselves. It's not that Russia can't make drones. It's that they're just going through them too quickly. And so if you knew that, like, Iran had a pretty robust drone system of their own, and it made sense considering that Iran really re wanted to rely on asymmetrical warfare. That's They know that they can't really, if they ever come into a fight with the United States or Israel for that matter, they can't really, you know, pull. If they tried to, to, to engage us on, on equal terms, they'll end up going the same way that Saddam Hussein went in 1991, right? So, yeah. you know, they, they, they've really tried to rely on asymmetrical warfare. And drones are one of those more modern technologies that kind of lean heavily into that strategy. So in some respects, it was kind of only a matter of time before an Iranian-made drone got into the hands, willingly or unwillingly, right? Iran denies this, but we know that we know, the United States knows almost certainly that they were intentionally supplying these weapons to these militant groups that are allied to them who then use them against us, right? So, But we, we knew it was only a matter of time that, until such such a thing would happen, which kind of leads you into the second part of what you were saying, which is like, okay, we know that, you know, if you go back four years ago, one of the talking points that, you know, Biden supporters were using was, oh man, I can't wait for the adults to be back in charge. Yeah. Well, how's that working out for you? Yeah. Like I, for all of its faults and Believe me, there were many. We've we've talked about many of them actually. Like like we, we don't shy away from criticizing Trump where we see it fit. I mean, one of our biggest criticisms is is his monetary policy that he had during COVID. But for all of his faults, it, it is you would have to to be you know reaching for straws basically in order to to argue that that Trump's foreign policy was even remotely close to as disastrous as as Biden's has been. Well, and I, go, go, yeah, go ahead. I think, uh, yeah, no, I, I think, I think you're right. And it, it's one of those things where it feels sometimes as if whenever Democrats are in charge, um, it, because they're, because they are so much more willing to be, um, critical of the United States, of our foreign policy, of our domestic policy on, on the open stage of our history of everything. It, it, it's almost like they're offended when America's enemies attack them when they're in power. Because it's almost like, well, wait a second, guys. We told you, we we get it. We're we're bad, and we've got to improve, and we've got to listen, and we've got to be humble. Like we, we told you, we we why are you attacking us? It's like because because our enemies don't want your friendship, right? They they want your weakness, and and when you're offering that weakness, well, then they're going to exploit that because they don't just have goals against the West or goals against the United States. They also sometimes have their own domestic and regional goals and their own domestic and regional political objectives that they're going for. And if, and if you're going to portray weakness, if you're going to project weakness, well, then they're going to take advantage of that. And, and, and I, I swear it's, it's, I swear it's like they all, they've all been reading, you know, soft power books thinking, well, no, no, they would never do that. No. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what they've been waiting for. And, and with Trump, they never knew what the response was going to be, right? The, the response from Trump could have been, you know, sanctions or it, it, it could have been, pinpointing specific people within your government and killing them, right? And, and that's all of a sudden the, the stakes, the consequences for launching attacks, whether it be against the United States directly or our, or our allies, go up significantly. And that kind of leads me into talking about the next thing, which is this whole idea of, is, okay, so what has been the U.S. response 
under Biden. And before we get into this U.S. response, we also have to acknowledge that the, the people that, you know, are our enemies, our allies, and, and everyone in between is all, you know, nobody has, nobody has perfect knowledge of what's going to happen in the future. Nobody has perfect knowledge of, of who's going to be in power at various times within various regions. And one of the things that they're, they do look for is what do we, what can we reasonably anticipate the United States will do? They're not curious with respect to what our capabilities are, right? You, you, really, you really have to have been just ignorant over the past 50 years to, to not recognize that if the United States really wants to, we can pretty much do just about anything we want militarily. And I, and I don't mean like long-term winning the war. I mean, if we want to strike a particular target, if we want to park a carrier battle group in your harbor, if we want to plant an armored division in your backyard, you're not stopping us, right? If so, so long as the military will is there, we possess the capability, the technology in order to carry it out. And so the, the strategy that many people use against the United States has very, very little to do with whether or not they can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the United States in a conventional fight. They know they can't. So they, they maximize their, their asymmetric capabilities. And again, for those that haven't heard us talk about asymmetry before, it's just you know a, another way of talking about how if, if I have to go up against an enemy that is, is, is much more powerful than I am, that what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find whatever weaknesses they have. And, in, and instead of... Instead of uh, creating a military response or capability that is equal with theirs, I'm trying to maximize my advantages toward whatever their disadvantages might be. Well, within the United States, a lot of our disadvantages are not based around our military capability. It's based off of our political vulnerabilities or standing on the world stage or convincing the American electorate that a particular conflict is, is not worth it. Um, all of those things factor into somebody making a strategic decision with respect to what the U.S. will do, but then the other factors that, that come into play have nothing to do with the United States, right? It has everything to do with their own domestic, regional, or, or international objectives. Nick, to, to that point, can can I ask you to like elaborate for the... I'm asking a question, basically, that, yeah. that, that I, I think the audience might ask themselves, and, and it, it, it hit me a minute ago when you were talking about this very briefly, and I'm sorry for interrupting. I can't wait for you to get no, back to the it. studio. Um, there is something to be said about, I've noticed personally, regardless of political ideology, I've noticed in the U.S. that, that there's almost this sentiment that it's, it's not explicit, but this almost this sentiment that like other countries in the world don't necessarily have agency. Only the United States does. And other countries around the world don't necessarily operate off of their own incentive structures that exist potentially completely independent of the United States' actions. They have their own interests, their own threats, their own opportunities, their, their own ambitions, right? And because every single country has its own unique geography and own unique culture and history and own unique rivalries and alliances, right? And I don't think that there's enough Americans that necessarily appreciate that fact, and you, you were mentioning it just a second ago, but you were almost mentioning it like in passing. And I, 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 I would love for you to just take a second to, well, sure. to, to really drive that point home to people about how what's happening in the Middle East is not entirely just because of the United States. A lot of these countries yeah. have their own agendas at stake, many of which, yes, can, and can involve the United States or are affected by the United States. But, you know, what Israel, Lebanon, Iran... 
you know, Saudi Arabia, the, you know, three-way civil war in Yemen, like, like a yeah. lot of what's going on there, you know, yes, some of it does have to do with the United States, but a lot of it doesn't. No, and, and well, and that's the thing is you have some people that want to completely oversell the United States's responsibility for everything. And then, and then you also have positively like stupid statements by the Bush administration, which is Al Qaeda hit us because they hate our freedom. Like, uh, okay. <laughs> it, yes, you, you can absolutely say that, that Al Qaeda does not like our way of life. They don't agree with it, but they're one of their primary reasons why they hit the United States is they, they see the United States as being one of the chief factors standing in the way of them being able to establish a, a caliphate or to bring back the, the, the old caliphate. Um, which again, from a historical reference, depending on on the various size, that went all the way from, you know, essentially Spain to, I mean, you know, modern day Hungary, Romania, and in the so all the way to Spain in the in the west. Spain, Morocco was kind of the the western limits of of the caliphate. The the northern limits of the caliphate um, kind of went into the again that area of like um, Romania, um, Hungary, uh, you know, part parts of that, and then the the eastern limit you know, went all the way into Iran. You're talking about the Ottomans for that last, yeah, well, for, for, well, for the, the Ottoman and other, uh, you know, and, and other caliphates that, and then obviously down in the Saudi Arabian peninsula, down in Egypt and, and whatnot. So it, it was a massive, it was a massive space. And um, clearly that doesn't exist anymore. And you, you have certain organizations within the region that either want to, you know, kind of bring back the, the glory days or, or they at least want to, you know, uh, recapture a portion of that within the Middle East, and they see Israel and the United States as directly standing in the way of that. Now, again, that doesn't justify, you know, what what Al Qaeda did. Um, but part of the problem is for the people that just want to simplify this to say, well, they just, you know, they just hate us for our freedom. Like, okay, well, you're not properly understanding what their actual grievance is. You, we can disagree with what their grievance is. You can say, it, I, I don't think it justifies what you're doing. You can say whatever you want. But if you don't properly understand it, then you're not going to actually understand what's motivating them. By the same token, you have other people that believe that, you know, well, the United States is responsible for all of the ills. And if we would just if we would just, you know, rescind and go away and leave everybody else alone, everything would be fine. Like, well, no, <laughs> you know, because because once again, some of the stuff that the United States does stand in the way of um, is, you know, would, would be pretty terrible. Now. Again, I, anybody that's watched us for more than five minutes knows that we don't believe that the United States has a is has a constitutional or a moral obligation to be the world's police force or to involve ourselves in every single conflict around the world. In fact, one of the biggest questions that is being asked about this is not just why did they attack U.S. service members. The question is why do we have so many U.S. service members all over the world? Because sometimes, it, you know, on the more I don't want to say conspiratorial side, I just want to say. You know, it, it seems sometimes that we have soldiers directly in you in, in harm's way because we know that once our troops get hurt, it, it's far easier to mobilize the American population to strike back or to in, become involved in a larger conflict. And, and there's a long history of this happening within the United States. And it just happened, you know, over the last 50 years, you can go all the way back to the Mexican-American War. You can go all, all the way back to the Spanish-American War. And you can start to look at some of these and going, okay, there, there were definitely times where, you know, U.S. politicians purposefully were pushing the envelope in, in particular areas. U.S. service members got harmed, and that became, that became the overall justification for going to war. And so th there is a legitimate argument to be made, which is to say that, look, 
we're not saying the United States should should pull away from every overseas posting that we have, but do we do do we really require this many men and women in uniform in dangerous places all over the globe, which it can end up becoming the impetus for a larger conflict? And I, I think that's a fair question. Because as as you've seen, the US response here, and I, let's bring up this article here real quick from Forbes. Because I, I thought this did a pretty good job of of doing so. The the title of it is "U.S. Strikes Iran Back Targets for Third Straight Day." Obviously, this is a, a a little bit older now. This is on February fourth, but it said the U.S. and coalition forces conducted more airstrikes against Iran-backed militant groups. This time, striking more uh, gosh Houthi Houthi targets in Yemen as the military continues a campaign of airstrikes and retaliation for the drone attack on the Tower 22 base in Jordan, which killed three American service members. U.S. forces launched the first retaliatory strikes for the Tower 22 attack on Friday night, targeting more than 85 Iran-backed militant positions in Iraq and Syria and killing an estimated 40 people. This is reported by Reuters. And then on Saturday night around 11.30 p.m. local time, U.S. and coalition forces conducted another round of airstrikes on 36 Houthi targets in Yemen, including multiple underground storage facilities, command and control missile systems, UAV storage and operation sites, radars, and helicopters. That was U.S. Central Command. Now, here's where it starts to get kind of interesting. Well, I shouldn't say it starts to get, it's already, you know, problematic, but this is where you start to see um, maybe something bigger coming down the pike. Around 4 a.m. on Sunday, U.S. forces in the Red Sea struck an anti-ship cruise missile that the U.S. said was launched by Houthi forces on the mainland and posed an imminent threat to U.S. Navy and merchant vessels in the region. So once you start to see um, once you start to see things like anti ship missiles uh, potentially hitting a, a U.S. ship, you you have an increased capacity for casualties, um, and you have an increased um, chance of of things escalating. And so far to date, when you look at the sort of strikes that we've been doing, um, it, it appears that they've been. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to really tell. But it appears that it's been somewhat surgical, um, but it, but it's also hard to say what what if any real effect it's having. Like, is this is this really getting the message across? Especially if you think that it's Iran backed militant groups that are doing this, because ultimately you can estimate that you killed forty people. Okay, were they bad guys? Were they not bad guys? Did did you actually de- degrade any of their capability? Did you degrade their capability in such a way that it would prevent them from being able to successfully launch a follow on attack? Um, you know what are, what are your what are your overall objectives? And this is something that I think has been difficult for the Biden administration to articulate and then make good on, which is why I think so many groups, whether they're terrorist groups or whether they're non-state actors or or other non-state actors or countries like Russia or Iran. Um, and increasingly the concern with, with China as well is, well, this is the time to test it out. Because if you look at the way that Biden pulled us out of Afghanistan, it, it, was, it would have been one thing to leave Afghanistan with some sort of structured settlement where the United States left. And it was, it was always going to be bad, right? Like, I don't want to give the impression that it was all bad because of the way Biden pulled out. I think it, it theoretically would have been bad either way. But... It looked horrible, and it, and it demonstrated to everyone that he was so dedicated to removing forces from Afghanistan that he didn't care about 20 years of us being over there. He, he didn't care about what happened to our allies. And and here's a part where I want to give some some people some insight that is, is kind of unique to those of us that have operated in this environment. When I was going through the Special Forces Qualification course, 
there's different training modules that you go through. And since Army Special Forces, better known as Green Berets, operate in the world of unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency, everything that we do tends to be by, through, and with local or indigenous forces. So when we're doing counterinsurgency operations, we're working with the host nation military in order to defeat insurgent and terrorist groups. When we're conducting unconventional warfare, we're working with local indigenous insurgent groups against the government. So if you look at the early days of Afghanistan, that was Green Berets you know, and, and other agencies working with the Northern Alliance in, in large part along with other groups in order to overthrow the Taliban. When you look at the sort of operations I was conducting in Iraq, that was me up working with Iraqi army, Iraqi militia, Iraqi police in order to go after terrorist and insurgent organizations within Iraq. So that kind of shows you the difference. But because there was such a strong emphasis, especially on the unconventional warfare side, that you had to be able to build trust with the people that you were working with. And you had to do that because I can't tell you how many of these training exercises we would go through where our indigenous force, um, where, where you're trying to make contact, you're trying to build rapport with them, and they would look at you and they'd say, you're not going to stick around. You're not going to do that. You will, say, you will say whatever you need to say right now to get what you want, but then you're going to leave. And they would point back to historical examples of the, of the United States doing this. Now, this is not to say that once the United States is committed to a particular course of action, that we are therefore committed to it forever, no matter what the results are. But it is something that we should take into consideration before we become involved on certain levels. And when you look at the U.S. strikes right now, the reason why sometimes I think our strikes are less effective than they could be is because, one, none of our enemies right now believe that Joe Biden is willing to actually get involved in a full-scale war. Now, keep in mind, because I'm going to have a lot of libertarian friends going like, I can't believe you're at... I'm not advocating for us to get involved in a full-scale war. What I'm saying is that your enemies can't know that the president will not get involved in a full-scale war. Right? If your enemies know that, then they, then they understand that your response is going to be limited in nature. Nick, that, that, that kind of brings me to the ultimate question of today's podcast. Personally, that brings me to that point, yeah. which is like, I, I agree with you on principle that, that Biden either lacks the, 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 the will or the knowledge or maybe the required worldview um, because he, he does come from that tradition and certainly he got elected in part from the people who, who want to apologize for America more than anything else. So I, I, I kind of agree with you that he's probably unwilling to get the United States into a war of his own choosing. And yeah. I, I think there's a big difference there because you can, you can start a war without intending to start a war, right? And, yeah. and, and by the way, that's not an endorsement of, man, I really wish we had a guy in the White House that would go and start wars for us, right? That, that is not at all the position that I'm taking. And I, I think there's some nuance there that you were hinting at that, no, no, it's about demonstrating the willingness to, okay, you know what? I'm not going to pick a fight, but if you pick a fight with me, I will finish the fight. There's well, a difference looked, between that and showing weakness. And, and so, so the, the question that I have is that like it, it feels like, at least to me, it feels like that, that everything in the Middle East is is moving towards a, a broader conflict. And when I say broader conflict, I mean more than just Gaza. And I mean more than just the Red Sea with the Houthis. Like, there's 
there's multiple different things, different different factors at play, but they all seem to be slowly converging towards the same place. It almost reminds me of like there was this book that I read called um, The Sleepwalkers, and mm-hmm. um, the the book was about everything that led up to World War One. And the author of the book was trying to argue that it wasn't Franz Ferdinand being shot that actually started World War One. That was the catalyst for something. You have yeah. to go back many, many years to find there's multiple crises. There was like the first, uh, you know, Tangiers crisis. There was the Moroccan crisis. There was there were two Balkan wars that took place before that. There was an Italo-Turkish war that took place before that. Like there were multiple different competing alliance structures. There was a naval arms race in the North Sea. There was another one in the Mediterranean. Like there there were multiple different things, all these different warning signs that if, if somebody had been paying attention, they could have predicted ahead of time what was going to happen? And there were a few people like Bismarck famously proclaimed that it would be some damn foolish thing in the Balkans that would start a mm-hmm. world war. Moltke, the elder before him back in the 1890s, predicted that there would be a world war when he gave a speech to the Reichstag. And yeah. and so like th- th- this this book really kind of, you know, heavily influenced the way that I I look at some of these these, you know, flashpoints that, that pop up in the world, because. It, when you piece some of these things together, and especially in a place like the Middle East, you can see it's that it's almost like we're lurching towards this crisis, and there doesn't seem to be any sort of strategy or or a, a, approach to try to avert what could end up being a larger war. And in fact, like another one of the tabs that I've got, by the way, for those who are watching us on YouTube, here's my hundred tabs that we joke about all the time. <laughs> um, another one of the tabs that I have pulled up is, and I'm, I won't play the clip, even though it's only 10 seconds long, but there was a clip from just a few days ago of Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state saying that the situation in the Middle East is more dangerous today than at any point since 1973 and potentially even earlier the 1973. And for those yeah, of you- Yeah, 1973 was a full-blown Egyptian, or a full-blown Egyptian-Syrian invasion of Israel. Yeah, <laughs> like it was it the Yom was, Kippur was War. Yeah, it was the Yom Kippur War, I, and you and you also had, it was also at the height of the, the Cold War, where you had the, the Russians back in a lot of the Arab countries, the United States back in Israel, and so there were there were huge implications. So for Blinken to make that statement is, is profound. Yes, and, and, and coming from the Secretary of State saying it's more dangerous than any point since then, and possibly even before then. So he's now hinting at like the Six Day War. And- well, well, to to your point, to your point, right? Like with when you talk about World War One, and and it's like it's very easy for us to look back later, and it was like, oh, it was the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand? No, it wasn't. There was multiple things that converged at, at a particular point. There was multiple conditions, and then there was a catalyst. And that kicked everything off. And you see that with a lot of bad things that, that happen in the world. You also see it with good things that happen in the world. So for instance, they're, they're, the conditions can be you're really hungry and farmers have a lot of great beef, poultry, pork, and like wild-caught seafood. And then good ranchers comes in and collects all of that and then delivers it to your door. Right. So you see how that you had the convergence of various conditions. And then the catalyst was good ranchers saying, you know what, we're going to do something about this. We're tired of hungry Americans over here desiring healthy proteins and good American farmers and fishermen over here not being able to get it to them. And so good ranchers stood in the gap. And not only not only are they providing you this, but for the month of February, there is a new deal and that deal is quite possibly one of the greatest conditions and catalysts of all time. No exaggeration, because if you go to GoodRanchers.com and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions to their delicious beef, pork, poultry, or wild-caught seafood, they're going to give you free bacon. That's right. 
the food that you use to wrap every other food on the planet in order to make it even better. GoodRanchers.com, promo code Nick, sign up for a subscription, and they're going to give you free bacon. Not just once. If they gave it to you just once, that would be wonderful. You would be appreciative. But no, no, no. They're going to give you free bacon with every single order in that subscription. If you go in February, GoodRanchers.com, promo, promo code Nick. Again, one of the best conditions, catalyst environments you could possibly you could possibly have. Let's get back to the um, the bacon deal is the best one. Man, you blindsided me with that ad transition there. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> that was well, a good yeah, one. Ha- I, I I'd give that like an eight out of ten right there. <laughs> Hamilton's always like signaling, me like, dude, dude, you're going pet. You got it. We got to do it. Like, okay. So, <laughs> but but to to your point, to your point, because because it is a valid one, right? It it is too easy to just say, oh, it's this or it's that. There, there's multiple factors. Well, the multiple factors that we've been discussing this whole time is, again, the United States, first of all, we we, we came home, we, we ended the wars uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, Iraq, not under the best conditions, but it, at least there's still some semblance of, of the government the United States helped establish over there and, and, you know, and, and a government that we can work with. In Afghanistan, it just it, it the joke that we fought for twenty years and we exposed twenty years worth of blood and treasure to replace the Taliban with the Taliban um, is unfortunately a, a reality. And, and the way that the Biden administration left sent a signal to the entire world that he's just not serious. That he's so sick of war, he'll do essentially anything to avoid it. And then all of a sudden, you have Russia invading Ukraine, and now. Because, again, Putin got the message. Putin got the message the United States is war-weary. And then with COVID and with inflation and everything else, did we really have the capacity to to you know come in and intervene on Ukraine's behalf? Well, Ukraine managed to put up more of a resistance than Russia was anticipating. Russian military operations didn't go as planned. And then it bought Ukraine enough time for Western money, and, and, and even if it was money we had to print, Western money to make it over there as well as Western hardware, which change the balance in that conflict. But so what you have is you have, you have one war of which we've already spent like, uh, you know, I think hundreds of billions of dollars at this point. And now you have the peace accords, which are, are again, have either completely chilled or, or, or off the table in some respects because of Iran pushing Hamas to do what Hamas already wanted to do, but then also putting the United States where once again, here, here's, another, here's another source for money that we have to, we don't have to, but Congress is now allocating for yet another conflict, right? More U.S. military hardware that's going to be sent over. And then, of course, you have everything that's going on at the southern border right now. So if you're an enemy of the United States, what you what you see is a weak president that already was not predisposed to want war. Right. And and I shouldn't say predisposed to not war, who was already predisposed to essentially allow you to get away with a whole lot more than the previous administration in order to avoid war. Right. So that that's the calculus that a lot of our enemies are, are entering into this, this discussion with is they have they have domestic objectives. They have regional objectives and they see the United States as being weaker now, both from a military perspective, from a domestic tranquility perspective and from a financial perspective. And so you, you add all of those things together and that indicates to you that, hey, if you're going to strike, this might be the time to do it. Because you don't know what the next administration is going to look like. You don't know what the future holds. So strike now while you can. And this is the part where we get into, again, if, if you, let's, let's use Putin as an example just for a moment. Because I, I don't want to make this a whole thing where it's like Republicans good, Democrats bad, right? There, there's, been, there's been bad on, on both. Putin invaded countries under the Bush administration. Putin invaded Crimea under 
uh, Obama administration. Putin didn't invade anybody under Trump. And then Putin invaded Ukraine again under the Biden administration. Iran did strike or, or, or backed forces that, that bombed the American embassy in Iraq under the Trump administration. And what happened? Well, did, did Trump you know, deploy or carry a battle group? Did he deploy troops into country? Did he, did he strike a bunch of like? No, he actually very, very specifically targeted the head of Quds Force, which, which is a, a section of the um, Iraqi, or excuse me, Iraqi, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps um, that deals with unconventional warfare, terrorist attacks, things of that nature. So he basically went to the top of the pyramid of the guys responsible for the attack in Iraq, and he killed that guy. That sends a pretty powerful message because the other thing that ends up happening in a lot of these conflicts is the people making the decisions and pushing the buttons are essentially isolated from or, or at the very least um, largely protected from the consequences of those actions. It's not as if their personal life is in danger. It's not as if their personal fortunes are in danger. It's not as if their, you know, their rule is in danger. And so all of a sudden, when, when Trump launched that attack against the Quds Force, I think it, it sent a, it, the sort of message it sent, and, and you could see this as well with what was going on with, with Syria at the time. And, and I had some problems with some of the stuff Trump was doing because I did think he, he should have gotten more congressional approval for some of the more sustained attacks in Syria. But the message that he was sending was is that he would exact a very, very heavy toll and he would go after leadership targets. And... It's important to understand that if you want some of these groups and you want some of these, these um, you know, especially when we're talking about um, Iran or, or, or Russia, if you want to send the message that they're going to pay a very, very personal price for this, that's kind of the way to do it. I mean, you, you could say that, well, Saddam Hussein, you know, we invaded and took over his country. Okay, yeah, sure. But you got to a point at, at that where we were doing things over in, in Afghanistan and Iran that organizations like Al-Qaeda wanted done. Now, I think they completely underestimated military staying power and military, um, you know, technological capacity because those organizations were, were largely, you know, destroyed. But new organizations were able to rise up in their place. And this is this is one of the differences that we need to look at between, you know, sustained, um, you know, long term sustained wars where you're going to have a, a multi year, perhaps multi decade U.S. military presence versus punitive strikes. And this is an area where, again, and, and I, I have a lot of criticism of the Bush administration because I think he was very much into this notion of. We're going to make the you know we're going to make the world safe for democracy by overthrowing um, dictatorships and then having a large U.S. military presence and then we're going to we're going to raise up uh, a new government which is going to be friendly to the United States, friendly to our allies, and oh so grateful that we did this. And what he found, to your point, Christian, that you were making earlier, is that yeah, this is all a little bit more complex than that, Hoss. And so. When we talk about what should the U.S. response be to everything that's going on right now, this is one of those areas where I think a more nuanced approach is preferable. The problem is I'm not sure Biden can pull it off. Um, so let, let's go. Let's talk a little bit about the last time we launched a major military operation against Iran. Yeah, this and by, was... And, Nick, th this was interesting because I didn't know anything about that. Like, like, like when you were yeah. building the outline for this episode 
and and you you know were pulling some of these links and stuff like that and bringing up some points that you wanted to get across um i there was something new that i learned that i yeah. had no memory of like when you were talking about and I, i'm going to give a very slight hint at where you're going to be going when you brought mm -hmm. up reagan i was thinking to my my first thought was Nick's out of his mind. Why should we be looking to Ronald Reagan as a as a role model for how to deal with Iran? I kept thinking of Iran Contra. Iran Contra, yeah. And so I yeah. was like, this is gonna like give the wrong impression to our audience. They're gonna think like, oh man, Nick and Christian are crazy. And then I saw what you were pulling from and yeah. like what you wanted to talk about. And I was like, this is so fascinating. This th th this thing that Reagan did that you're going to talk about in a second, I had no, I I I'd never learned, and I really pride myself on learning as much as I possibly can about military history, particularly in the Middle East. It's it's one, the Middle East and the Mediterranean region are the two places in the world that I love learning the most about when it comes to history, military, yeah. military engagements. I mean, going back all the way to you know. Crassus fighting the Parthians at, at Cary, right? Like it, this part of the world just fascinates me. And this was a, a little piece of history that that took place not that long ago, you know, two no. two generations ago, three generations ago that that I just didn't know. And and when I when I read about this, what I learned was that like this actually is the approach we should take because it's not. It, it contrasts very nicely from, on one hand, you have the neocon nation builders who think we should be there for 20 years and we need to construct democracy in a part of the world that has never practiced democracy, going all the way back to the Achaemenids. There's never been a democratic system in, in Mesopotamia or Persia. It, it, just, it just hasn't happened. And more importantly, we have a more recent example in the last 20 years of the United States trying to construct democracies in this part of the world and failing miserably to do so. So that's off the table. But you know what? I'm also, and we've done whole podcasts on this, I'm not on board with the whole blame America, apologize for everything yeah. that, that America has done, and then somehow these other countries and other non-state actors are going to be on our side. That, yeah, that, if, if only we would be nicer, then, then they would see that we're actually really good guys and, and that there's no problem here. And, and I think that just completely misunderstands some of the, in, in, in some cases, centuries old, in some cases, you could argue millennia old, you know, co conflicts that, that have been going on in these, these areas. And, and again, I, I think I, I'm, a, I'm a constitutionalist, which means I believe that um, there, the president does have some authority with respect to protecting the United States against imminent attack or protecting U.S. forces against imminent attack. But again, this, this begs the question, especially with respect to the U.S. forces, why do we have so many in so many parts of the world? And what can truly be justified as le legitimate defense of U.S. national security interests versus, you know, like ha just having troops all over the place? Because you, you don't, here's what I will say, and this is the part where it gets controversial. You don't get to tell me that there aren't elements within the United States that benefit greatly from conflict and are a little bit more eager to push us into it and, and to do it under the guise of patriotism when in reality it's under the guise of, of you know, stock price. Um, uh, look, I don't, I don't want to think people think that way. They do, right? Now, keep in mind, I don't mean everybody within the defense industry, all right? I want a robust defense industry in the United States to be able to make sure that we have the best weapons and systems, the best equipment uh, available, the best equipment possible. 
But that's one of the things that our elected leaders are supposed to do is actually go through the constitutional process before we become involved and engaged in long-term military operations, especially if you're going to actually try to attempt something like nation building. You know, and everyone likes to point to Germany or, or, or Japan as, as the model examples of, oh, look, see, it can be done. And I'm not suggesting it can be done. I am suggesting it's far more difficult and a lot more complex than we sometimes give it credit for. And, and, and look, I've been guilty of this as well because I used to, you know, when I, when I was in my younger 20s and I was like, gung-ho, let's go, beat, let's go defeat everybody, my attitude was, well, gosh, we did it in, in uh, Japan and that was a, a very, very different culture than, than the West. And look, now it's a, a flourishing, you know, constitutional, um, you know, government with, with democratic processes and representative government and it's friendly toward the United States and it's been a, a strategic and, and economic ally, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great, but there, there was also conditions that existed there that didn't exist in some of the other areas that we're operating in. And if you don't properly understand that or appreciate it, you're going to run into trouble. And I will tell you right now, my, my position, and a lot of this is based off of my experience in, in doing operations in Iraq, it is that it, it's, it is definitely arrogant for us to assume that you can go into an environment and, and a culture that really is not is not necessarily interested in, in the sort of government that you have or the sort of economic system that you have and just assume that, okay, well, this is the way it's going to operate now because we won the war. Well, okay, nobody looks at it that way. They're, they're willing to look at this from a, a generational standpoint far more than we are because the, the, their whole culture is rooted in this idea that you know their, their ancestry and their systems and their uh, tribal affiliations um, go back, again, centuries if not millennia. So when we look at it, when we look at a situation like Iran, here's what I want to pull up. There was a operation called Operation Praying Mantis. And um, I'm going to read this off for you a little bit. Christian's going to put it up on the, on the screen. Uh, it's the, this comes from the Naval History and Heritage Command. But uh, Operation Praying Mantis. On 18 April, 19, April, yeah, 18 April 1988, the U.S. Navy launched Operation Praying Mantis against Iranian targets in the Arabian Gulf in retaliation for the USS Samuel B. Roberts mining four days earlier. So the Samuel Roberts had run into a mine, um, which blew an immense hole in the ship's hull. Ten sailors from Samuel B. Roberts sustained severe injuries. Four were seriously burned. Commander Paul X. Wren was hurt as well. The ship should have sunk, but thanks to an extraordinary damage control effort by the hands of an extremely well-trained crew, Samuel B. Roberts was kept afloat. Now here's where we get into the... I love the way they say this. The U.S. response was fierce. <laughs> Operation Praying Mantis was the largest of five major U.S. Navy surface actions since World War II. It was the first and so far only time the U.S. Navy has exchanged surface-to-surface -surface missile fire with an enemy, and it resulted in the largest warship sunk, uh, largest warship sunk by the U.S. Navy since World War II. In the one-day operation, the U.S. Navy destroyed two Iranian surveillance platforms, sank two of their ships, and severely damaged another now that's that's kind of the official you know what, what was that from it's um uh naval history and heritage command all right that's that's kind of the official a little bit selected they've got some other interesting stuff in here if you want to see quite frankly one of the most interesting slash funny um renditions of this there's a youtube channel called the fat electrician and <laughs> His, his title is America Obliterates Half of Iran's Navy in Eight Hours. 
and and he he talks about the proportional response that the Iranian or that the United States Navy launched here. And and what's interesting was a, a lot of the damage was actually done by two by uh, two pilots that just went around and essentially jacked up the Iranian Navy. I mean, it was if one of the things that it did in 1988 was it demonstrated the huge technological and training mismatch between the U.S. Navy and the Iranian Navy, and this is something that we've talked about before when we've when we've talked about like the Chinese military. It is one thing to say, you know, so many cruisers, so many destroyers, so many corvettes, so many fighter aircraft, so many bombers, da 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 da, add it all up and be like, oh wow, well, it's, I mean, <laughs> the technology and the training um, factor into this in a way that is oftentimes not properly appreciated. And this was one of those times that demonstrated that because Iran would have considered some of the, the uh, ships that it had that it brought to the fight on this to be state of the art. A and yet the United States Navy uh, with both naval and air power essentially just decimated our Iranian naval capabilities, like I said, in eight hours, like it was done. We, we didn't we didn't then invade the country and stay for 20 years trying to set up a democracy right we, we didn't do any of that it was you mind you mind waters that you should not have mined that you were not you know legally permitted to mine right insofar as that goes one of our ships uh, was got damaged as a result could have sunk but thanks to the the skill of the crew sur, you know survived um, you seriously injured several of our sailors so now we're going to jack up your whole world. And, and it was great because a lot of times, this is another thing you hear from people like Biden and something, we're going to launch a proportional response. Really? Why? Why would you launch a proportional response? Why wouldn't you launch a the sort of response that lets people know that if, if, you, if you slap us, we're going to beat the living piss out of you. We're going to throw you to the ground and we're going to kick the crap out of you until you stop moving. And then you will learn that slapping us is a bad idea, right? <laughs> Say what you want. But when you're when you were talking about you know uh, American lives at stake, I don't want a proportional response. Now again, that doesn't mean I want a full blown war. It doesn't mean we need to invade. It doesn't mean the 82nd Airborne Division needs to be dropped into Tehran. It just means that the response that you give is such that it sends the proper message and gets them to change their course of action. Now, again, another interesting thing about Operation Praying Mantis is it wasn't originally designed to go in there and achieve everything that it did. Um, in, in fact, it was it was slowly starting to escalating because this is the other thing that happens when you put guys with guns in proximity to one another. Um, but the U.S. side was able to basically walk away with kind of an overwhelming victory. I, Iran was also able to kind of walk away with, okay, we get it. And the question that we have right now is, not just with respect to the three U.S. service members that were killed, but with respect to everything that is going on, what is the, the appropriate response right now? Now, again, I think it is one thing to say that we're going to launch strikes as a result of what happened with our U.S. service members being killed. We, we can have the debate on whether or not they should have been there in the first place, right? We can have that debate, but they were, okay? They were, and they were killed, and that deserves a response. Right? And, and this is the part where I, I sometimes run afoul of, of my libertarian friends where they're like, well, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. And the best thing we can do you know, is just is leave. Like, no, I, I don't I don't believe that. Um, I do believe that if, if you deliberately target U.S. troops, then a, a price has to be exacted for that. 
Uh, by the same token, I'm also aware that if you create a perverse incentive structure where every time U.S. troops get involved, you know, defense, uh, mil the military industrial complex makes a ton of money, then you're setting up a perverse incentive there. So I, I get that. Um, I just think the debates need to take place somewhat separately. I think we, even though there's a connection there, and I'm acknowledging that, we need to make a, a decision about where we deploy U.S. troops and what's the risk associated with it. Because I know when I was in the military, I couldn't go to a shooting range without doing a risk assessment. And if one of the risk assessments on, on having troops in a particular area is that it could draw us into a wider war for which we are not willing to be engaged in, or we don't think is critical to U.S. security interests, then it is fair to say, okay, this might not be a good place for U.S. troops, period. By the same token, I do think the more, you know, uh, Reagan approach with praying mantis and, and specifically the, the Trump approach too, with respect to the Coots force commander that was, was taken out, um, as a result of the terrorist attack on the, on the U.S. Embassy in Iraq, I, I do think that provides a very, very different approach that the U.S. can take where we're able to take full advantage of our military superiority. Because we do. We have overwhelming military superiority. And we should, at times, use it selectively, strategically, in order to send a signal both to our enemies and our allies that, we don't have to get invade. We don't have to get in involved in a multi-decade war with you. We can pretty much decimate your offensive capability um, in eight hours, right? And that's what we could do back in 1988. I will tell you right now, the um, the, the imbalance between American military power has only increased significantly during that time. So if if in 1988 our military capability allowed us to destroy a, a significant portion of their Iranian Navy, naval capability within eight hours. I will say that that overall capability has not been diminished, right? So this is the part where there needs to be more of a strategic approach and looking at what is the role that Congress plays. And then with respect to the United States, being far more strategic and effective at, with our response, while at the same time, minimizing civilian casualties. One of, one of the problems that the West has gotten involved in is the, the West does take more caution than I believe just about any other military in the world. So like the, the U.S. military, the, the, uh, the British military, um, the Australian military, these are some of the ones that I've, I've actually served with take a great deal of precautions in order to minimize civilian casualties. Now, right off the bat, I can already tell some people are like laughing at this and spitting at me on the, on the other side of the camera because there have been so many cases, especially when it comes to drone strikes or airstrikes, where that has not been the case. And there's some very, very fair critiques about that. What I will say, though, is that when it comes to selecting targets, hitting those targets, even if it is from the air, I guarantee you there is far more planning and intelligence work that goes into that when the U.S. does it than when Iran does it, right? So you might say that's not a, you know, we don't care about that comparison because we're not comparing ourselves to Iran. Fair point, but let's, let's be intellectually honest across the board. I will say the, the same thing is true with respect to U.S. ground forces. Um, we, we assumed certain risks by conducting the operations that we did that we never would have assumed if we didn't care about civilian casualties. And that's just a fact. And you can say that we can do better. Sure, I won't disagree. You can say that, well, if we didn't get involved in some of these wars, we wouldn't have had any civilian casualties. That's fine. I agree. 
But when it comes to our actual tactics, we do go to great lengths in order to try to prevent civilian casualties compared to pretty much anybody else in the world. Um, now, when it comes to what happened with praying mantis, I think one of the things that was so effective about it is that because it was largely about reducing naval capability, um, you, you created a very, very clear environment where we were, we were attacking uh, a naval target, which seemed relevant because this whole thing that, that started this off was the, the illegal mining of uh, these waters. You took out a naval capacity, uh, and you did it in such a way to where you, you could you could easily say that you were minimizing civilian casualties because it's not like it's not like you were going to hit a ship at sea and accidentally find out later that it was a baby formula plant, right? Like that's that's not a thing. And so the thing that I would say if I was in if I was in you know the you know the West Wing right now providing uh, you know guidance, not that I would be. But if I was in that position, I'm going to start looking at, okay, what, what, are the, what are the legitimate military targets that we can take out, which significantly degrade Iran's ability to project power? Because that's what they want to do. They want to be able to project power. How do we do that? While at the same time ensuring that we're not, because even if you want to blow up a drone plant, okay, great. But the 50 workers at the drone plant, right, are just doing a job. And if you kill all 50 of them, well, then you're, you're radicalizing 50 families as a result of that strike. So how do you strategically go in and degrade Iran's ability to project power, which not only hurts them, but also lets your allies know that you are willing to strike, you're willing to strike strategically, and you're also willing to do so in such a way to where it doesn't create problems for them domestically or regionally. And the good news is, is we have the capability to do it. The bad news is, is that we haven't done it very well in, in, in recent history. And we haven't set up a clear line by which we distinguish between the president either responding to attack or defending against an imminent attack and legitimately declaring war on someone and, and, and executing it that way. And, and there's, there is something that needs to take place, especially between that relationship with respect to Congress and the presidency. And I will say that Thomas Massey brings this up all the time. He's like, you know, every time we get into these issues where we're talking about, well, what about the courts or what about legislation or what about that? The reason why the House of Representatives has the power of the purse, right? All budget bills in Congress, federal budget bills have to originate in the House is because that was that was one of the ultimate mechanisms that Congress had in order to tell the executive branch, you're done. Right, you're not doing that anymore. Was basically by pulling funds, and Congress does need to become a, a lot more willing to do that. And so, we're we're in this very very interesting time right now, where on one side there's this unique uh, ability for Congress to once again reassert its authority and reassert its constitutional responsibilities with respect to, you know, um, conducting war. And the executive branch, the, the Biden administration has essentially demonstrated such a, an incredible degree of incompetency uh, across the board with respect to foreign policy and domestic policy. But the, the, such an incredible degree of incompetence with respect to foreign policy that he is inviting attacks. And so it, it's not just U.S. presence in these areas. It's, it's the fact that there have always been various regional objectives among the players within those regions. And they now see this as the best time to attack. Whereas if Donald Trump was president, 
you, you, might, you might hold the exact same position that you always have with respect to foreign policy. You might say, I don't want anybody getting us involved in wars, uh, whether it's Trump or Biden. The difference is, is because our enemies didn't know what Trump would do and knew that Trump would be, A, willing to use the United States military's full capacity, and B, didn't necessarily feel any sort of, of desire or obligation to rebuild afterwards, right? It would, we're going to strike you, it's going to hurt, and that's the point, right? There, there, is no, there is no, oh, and then we're going to come in and nation build and try, nope, we're going to punish your regime, and, and we're going to provide any, any elements within your country who don't like your regime, we're going to provide them with yet more arguments to cause you problems, whether that be through election or whether it be through insurgent activities or whatever else it might be. And so that's, if there's anything good that can come out of this, it would be us actually having a, a serious discussion <coughs> about how the United States responds to attacks like this, where you have state actors working in conjunction with non-state actors in order to fight proxy wars? And, and what is the best way to actually address that? Nick, Sorry. Um, when, I was, <coughs> when I was looking over the, um, the show notes for today's episode that you had uh, drawn up, one thing kind of caught my attention, and then I, I, I elaborated on it a little bit more myself when you asked for some feedback from me. And the way that I looked at it was is that the situation in the Middle East right now, we kind of have four options on both sides, and unfortunately they're all bad to varying degrees. And yeah. and I broke it down into like a weak response and a lunatic response from both yeah. the left and the right. And so the the um the weak response that I saw on the right was dragging the United States into another 20 year long nation building opportunity for not even opportunity, nation building exercise that you know turns into another quagmire where again we're in Afghanistan for 20 years or we're in Iraq for almost 20 years. And there are people in Congress. That was that, the weak. Re that's the weak response. Yes, because because the lunatic response is starting a war that requires U.S. troops to invade a country like Iran. That I think would be the okay. lunatic response. Starting a ground war, right? That, that that that's the Lindsey Graham response. We need to invade yeah, Iran, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas like. The weak response is almost like the Bush doctrine, where it's like it's not just that that we're gonna invade; it's it's that we're going to again we're gonna you know make the world safe for democracy. We're gonna go in and nation build, and we're gonna spend hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, trying to build up other countries at the same time that we have things like a open border crisis on the southern border right now in the United yeah. States that needs addressing. In fact, there was a bill that came out j literally just a few hours ago that was supposed to be this like big bipartisan and you know it's bad when it's bipartisan by the way <laughs> yeah um yeah. Anything, when all the politicians agree on something half the time it's 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 bad <laughs> yeah it means that they're screwing you collectively and <laughs> and so like there was this bipartisan bill that that was you know announced literally just a few hours ago and the the bill literally was we're going to give 60 billion to ukraine 14 billion to israel and then 20 billion to securing the united states border so <laughs> I mean, what that what that literally means is in order for the United States to secure its own border at a time when we have three million illegal immigrants coming into the U.S. every single year, almost one percent of the American population per year entering yeah. the United States illegally. We and we did a podcast on this not that long ago. Right. With the whole crisis where Texas is standing up to the federal government now. In fact, that was one of our best performing episodes of all time. At the same time that we have that going on. 
we're basically being told by politicians in both parties in Washington, D.C., that in order to secure our own borders, we need to first give almost $75 billion to foreign countries. Yeah, that, no, and, and we know, we all know what's going on here right now is that you have certain elements within Congress that want to secure funding that they know is relatively unpopular with the American people except for certain sectors. And they want to tie it to something that the public and, overwhelmingly thinks needs to be done. Yeah, and we and we see this all the time. This is this is the common way that Congress does business: is they will take something unpopular, they will attach it to something popular, and then dare you to vote against it, as a way of saying, "Oh, see, you didn't want to do anything about the border." And and it, and it's intellectually dishonest, um, and it's a way a lot of it's a way a lot of expenditures and and um, you know budget style bills get done in Washington D.C. Um, but yeah, yeah. So to, to your that's point, the weak the, response on the right. And well, then the, the lunatic well, think, response is invade Iran. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the weak response on the right is we're going to send a bunch of money to different groups in order to whatever. Um, and then we're going to condemn them and we're going to launch some drone strikes and, and say we got them. The lunatic response is let, let's, let's invade Iran and, and we'll, we'll turn it into a, you know, whatever a Western democracy. And we know what the um, uh, weak and lunatic response on the left is, right? The weak, oh, the, response, the weak response on the left is uh, Iran should invade the United States, right? <laughs> like, no, 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 no. That, that's the, the lunatic response. The weak response. Oh, sorry, on, yeah. uh, the weak response on the left is, man, you were getting ahead of the, the joke that was going to be coming. <laughs> the weak response on the left is, is basically like apologizing and, and, you know, Kind of embold what what you were saying earlier, right? Kind of, kind of emboldening some of these regimes to continue attacking the United States, regardless yeah. of. And I agree with you that, like, I I would question why do we even need troops in Jordan, and and yeah. so like I, I agree with you that that's an absolutely worthy thing to question, no doubt about it. I think that we should we, we should examine where we have troops all over the world and and seriously ask ourselves whether or not we should actually have those troops there. Because I think that there's a lot of places that we have troops in that we don't need to. But the fact is, is that, and, and it invites attacks. But that gets into the weak response from the left, which is inviting these attacks to happen by demonstrating weakness. The lunatic response is openly siding with these terrorist yeah. groups like Hamas, like the Houthis. Yeah. You're seeing all of these like indoctrinated college, you know, students and universities or 20 something year old leftists that are like marching through the streets of New York city and LA and stuff like that, that are saying things like globalize the Antifada and Yemen, Yemen, turn another ship around. Like yeah. that's the lunatic response from the left, which is I'm going to openly side with the terrorist groups that are massacring people. And, and that, you know, are basically preaching jihad and wanting to, you know, reform the caliphate. Like that's the lunatic response from the left, which yeah. again, we've also talked about where it's like the oppressor oppressed mentality has led them into concluding that Jews are oppressors. And obviously the United States is the ultimate oppressor. And so yeah. therefore Hamas are the good guys. Iran is the good guys. The Houthis are the good guys. That's the lunatic response. The weak response is kind of like the Joe Biden response, which is, inviting the attacks to happen, not necessarily rooting for them to happen, but inviting them to happen and then having no game plan for how to how to address them or better yet, coming up with a mechanism through which we can prevent attacks from happening in the future without us needing to get into a ground war with Iran because we don't want that to happen. I don't share Lindsey Graham's foreign policy here. I, I, in many respects, I, I have a lot of respect for, for Donald Trump's foreign policy because as you pointed out earlier, Trump didn't want to start a war with Iran either. But you know what? When Iran did pick a fight with the United States, he didn't send the 82nd Airborne in to, you know, do an airborne landing in, in Tehran. He struck the specific people 
that were organizing the attacks on the United States, like Soleimani, who was with, with the Quds Force. He did exactly what Reagan did in 1988 with Operation Praying Mantis. And I think that is the approach that we should be having. The first approach should be, we should not be putting ourselves in a situation where we can get ourselves into a war with a country that we don't want to be at war with, yeah. right? That's the first question, which goes into the whole, where should we even have troops located? I think it's totally legitimate to have that conversation. But the second question should be, how do we create a situation through which no country in the world would ever dare attack the United States or its service members without dragging us into a 20-year quagmire where we're doing nation building and democracy building in a part of the world that doesn't, quite frankly, want democracy in the first place and has no culture or tradition or history of democracy and, quite frankly, doesn't want us there anyway. It's not like the yeah. Iranians would want the United States to occupy them for 20 years. And so well, I think it's that that that's that's the, the span of unfortunately bad options that we have. And I think what you're trying to present is that we don't have to choose between these weak and lunatic responses that the left and right are proposing. No, we don't. And, and that's and that's really what this comes down to is that there, there's there's two questions. One is one is the, the question of our own constitutional process for determining you know, when, when, when the president has authority to act, right? We, we've already established this with respect to prevent the United States from imminent attack um, or, or even limited strikes with respect to responding when, when the U.S. has been attacked. When it comes to actually going to war, like there, for me, there's no excuse for Congress not declaring war in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Because they can say all day long, oh, it was Al-Qaeda. I don't care. The Taliban was running Afghanistan. Saddam Hussein was running Iraq. You could have declared war. And, and that whole process of declaring war would have actually gone us through the important debate that's supposed to happen among our elected officials in determining, okay, what are, what are our objectives? How do we define victory? Like all of those things. Um, the reason why that wasn't as difficult in World War II is because, one, Japan attacked us, and then Germany declared war on us, so we declared war on both. And the whole idea was is we're going to completely destroy, we're going to completely destroy their military capability. And then because of other factors in World War II, like the rise of the Soviet Union, there, there was a balance that had to be struck with respect to our, our allies, uh, both, it, it, again, at the end of the war, keeping Japan from going communist, um, South Korea, and then, you know, what, and against what was happening in China. And then in Europe, obviously, it was about trying to keep the, the Red Army from, you know, in, engulfing most of the continent. So there were unique strategic conditions there. Uh, that, that made certain courses of action uh, not only appropriate, but you could argue necessary. When it, when it comes to dealing with what's going on in Iran right now, I, I think what, what needs to take place is a, a proper understanding of what we're dealing with, with what is our response to non-state actors, what is our response to uh, state-supported non-state actors, and what is our response to the states that are supporting the non-state actors? And, and what does that look like? And, and the reason why I think that's so important on the political side is because there does need to be an understanding of where the left and right limits are. Um, by the same token, we're, we're going to have to have a, a president that actually understands what it means to project power and what it means to launch punitive expeditions as opposed to nation-building ones. And that's been one of the biggest things that we've been lacking because at the same time that at the same time that our enemies are developing asymmetric strategies for us, they're looking at all of our strengths, and then they're trying to find ways to turn our strengths against us. And then they're developing their own capability. There, there's a reason why China isn't trying to match the United States with respect to carrier capacity. 
right? Ch China isn't trying to have the same number of technologically advanced carrier battle groups as the United States. They're, they're developing hypersonic weaponry or they're looking at cyber, cyber warfare. Why? Because that gives them the biggest bang for their buck. By the same token, we seem to think that it's, it's either all about invading and completely changing the nation because we're big enough and rich enough to do it, right? That's the theory. Or it's about hitting targets for which we can say, oh, look at, look at what we did. Okay, <laughs> why don't we look at it a little bit differently? Why don't we look at what's motivating the regimes and why they're attacking the United States, right? And, and, and why aren't we looking, why aren't we making our strategic response when we do need to attack? Why aren't we focusing it more on the, the, the individual concerns of essentially the dictators in power? Because that's largely what we're dealing with. You can say elected governments all day long in Iran. We all know that the, the fix is in on a lot of that in a place like Iran. So again, when, when Trump strikes the head of the Quds force, that sends a far more powerful message than just economic embargoes because the, the other side can use an economic embargo to its favor in, in a way that, it, again, the regime itself, not to the favor of its people, but to the regime itself, far easier than it can when you take out the Quds force leader. Because just like regimes and just like politicians within those regimes or military commanders have their national objectives, but they also have their own personal objectives. So do the millions of individual citizens living within those countries. And, and if you're, if you're just going to work one day at the drone plant, because that's where you got a job and you get killed as a result of it, it it's not like you're going to, it's not like your family is going to go, well, you know, let's, let's look at this. Let's look at this. All right. The United States technically did strike a legitimate military target. And, you know, gosh, our own regime kind of brought this on because of what they were doing over in Gaza. That's not, that's not going to be the discussion around the dinner table. Right. So, so the question is, is, okay, well, how do we, you know, how do we minimize the impact toward the people that, you know, we're, we're really not, uh, you know, having this conflict with, and how do we direct all of it toward the people that are actually making the decisions and how do we influence their decisions? And, and I, I swear, I feel like sometimes American policymakers think of it as like, oh, well, this will show them. And you're looking at them going, you clearly have no idea uh, of the individual or perhaps the, the cultural considerations or the practical considerations on the ground. And you don't seem that interested because you just want to go back to your constituents and say, we hit them back. Or you just want to go back and this, well, this is all the administration's fault. I never would have done it this way. As opposed to actually understanding what can affect the sort of positive change that is actually beneficial to U.S. national security. Because long-term national, U.S. national security policy is not rooted exclusively in our ability to project military power when and where we want to. It's actually found in hopefully one day affecting circumstances on the ground where that, that is a country we trade with, not one we exchange missiles with. And you're never going to get there if that doesn't actually come up with a, a far more you know, strategic and nuanced position where we can achieve those sorts of end states. And, and unfortunately, I think we're at a position where it will require such a drastic course correction with the Biden administration because, you know, General Milley and Austin were, were, you know, too busy with, you know, studying white rage at West Point than they were actually understanding the people that actually pose a threat to this country. And so they don't have any international credibility. They don't have a great deal of domestic credibility. They haven't been focused on the right things that, that we should have if we actually want to be the sort of military force that can project power and do it effectively and efficiently, right? And, and so this creates the conditions which invite attack. So 
again, the, the thing that I hope will take place through all this, that I, I don't have a great deal of faith will take place in the Biden administration, but I like some of the things that are being said by certain members of Congress that are really questioning the, their role and what they should be doing in, in, in encounters like this. But I, I, I am hoping that if, you, if we end up with a, a, a Congress that is willing to reassert its authority over the power of the purse and to insist on its involvement with respect to the decision to go to war, right? You combine that with a chief executive that understands that there's several different approaches with respect to our military response. And I think that actually leads us to an environment where once again, we have countries, because we saw this under the Trump administration, we have countries within the Middle East that recognize that the path forward is actually a peaceful one. It's about recognizing Israel's right to exist and actually starting to engage in normal diplomatic and, and hopefully in the future trade relations. Because once you actually establish good trade relations, war becomes more difficult. Not impossible, but more difficult. And then we start to actually isolate those countries which are still willing to achieve their political objectives through terrorist action or through violent, aggressive action. That's the way that you're going to achieve that. right? It, it's, not, it's not the sort of isolationism that some people look for. It, it's not, it, it, it is certainly non-interventionist in the sense that we don't see it as our responsibility to get involved everywhere, that we understand that there's going to be certain regional conflicts which are legitimately none of our business. right? But at the same time, providing a certain degree of latitude to be able to strike when necessary while still respecting the proper role of Congress when it comes to going to war and having a president that probably understands their role in that entire equation. Their role is not to go out there and project to everybody exactly what U.S. response will be. Their goal is to demonstrate strength, resolve, and a respect for our, our constitutional processes, but that when they are given the power to strike, they do so not proportionally, overwhelmingly. And they're striking at the very people that are responsible for the aggressive action, the terrorist acts, not the citizens that happen to be living in the country. And I think if we can actually, if we can actually achieve that, we can enter into a very, very different world where the vast majority of our interaction is through trade, not conflict. Right. But I don't, I don't have any, but again, I don't, I don't have any delusions that that's going to be something that's achieved overnight, that that's something that's achieved easily, nor, nor do I think that, you know, hatreds which have existed for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, go away overnight just because the United States has the ability to conduct surgical strikes. And that's the other part of this conversation is, is actually determining when does, when does U.S. involvement, whether it be diplomatic, economic, or military, when, when is it? justified not only by a strategic American interest, but also by a, a legitimate and a comprehensive understanding of the situation on the ground. Because there, there probably needs to be times where you can always say, well, we had U.S. troops there, or, well, you know, there's a strategic mineral there, whatever. To, okay, great. Then maybe our troops shouldn't be there. Because if there's no legitimate way to actually, if, if there's no reasonable way to actually figure this out and to create an environment to where we can have normalized relations or normalized trade relations, well, then maybe our troops don't need to be there. How about that? How about we look at that as a possibility before constantly putting them in harm's way? I so love these that. Are some of the, these I, are some of the decisions I think we, we, need to, we need to go through. And unfortunately, unfortunately right now we have an administration that I think is, is largely incapable in of doing it. Um, and so I hope we have an administration in the future that, that will be. And, and I hope that it will set such a positive precedent
um, that it, it will it will be the sort of thing that you know all of those way all of those elements of American uh, political uh, and military power will operate the way that they were always intended to within the Constitution. But um, again, we've, we've strayed from that. So listen, um, this is a complex to- uh, topic. I'm sure this will be something that we, uh, we address again in the future is unfortunately more you know, military operations kind of present themselves. Um, right now, you know, again, our, our goal is, is how, do we, how do we avoid getting into the sort of large-scale conflict to where um, not just American men and women, but men and women in other countries too are going to have to go to war in, in situations that were probably preventable uh, through better, better policy decisions. Um, I don't necessarily think all wars are, are preventable. Sometimes you have a regime, sometimes you have a country which is hell-bent on doing something, and it's very difficult to, um, it's very difficult to avoid it. You know, Ronald Reagan said it best when we were confronting the Soviet Union, where he says, you can have peace tomorrow, all you have to do is surrender. Um, that can't be our option. Uh, but we are going to have to develop better national security strategies where we can avoid conflict in the first place because anybody thinking about perpetrating it against us knows that it is a losing endgame. Once again, thank you very much for joining us. And don't forget to go over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, order up one of those subscriptions and get free bacon with your orders. That's a pound and a half of free bacon with each order in that subscription. Again, bacon, the meat you use to wrap all of the other meats. Once again, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you next episode.